accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government, helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. Oh, you knew it was coming. The golden stallion, the man of tomorrow. Here for another great episode of Sovereign Tech, celebrating Saturnalia in the only way I know how. Oh, yes, baby. <laughs> you better believe it. Uh, anyway, Merry and Christmas, everybody. Uh, this is, of course, when you hear this, Christmas will have, uh, or Encryptmas will have long passed. But uh, I think the more we say that, the more perhaps it gets people thinking about encryption because it's a pretty important issue. So this episode... We are going to be talking, this episode is going to have a theme, and it's definitely a theme that I've planned, because a lot of times on Sovereign Tech, it's, uh, I don't set it up this way, but what will happen is, is somehow the stories, be it unconsciously or whatever, will somehow match up and create an overall theme. Uh, but this one is purely intentional, and we are going to be talking about the future. And not the so far off future either. This is not 2099. This is the very possible the very, uh, you know, real and perhaps, according to some people, the very soon. And why all these stories came out this week, some of them got sent in by listeners. I'm not sure uh, why exactly they were so prevalent. Maybe it's because the new year's coming and so everybody's looking towards the future or what. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss a lot of a lot of interesting stories and uh we will be doing a tool of the week this week i know a couple people said hey where's the tool of the week well we we got it coming don't worry (laughs) uh so also uh not this week even though i suppose it makes sense for christmas not this week but starting the following episode okay we will once again be doing the uh giving away game keys uh, for games and, you know, I'll have you like share the episode or something, whatever the case may be, uh, because I'm going to count on you because I honestly, I don't want to, if you want to be on social media or if it's part of your work, if you want to help share the show and that'd be one of the ways in which you could earn various game keys, uh, please do. But really, I, I, I'm, I'm so tired of, of social media just overall. I'm, I'm just really, really fucking sick of it. So anyway, uh, <laughs> you'll get a chance and, you know, to, to share the show. And I want to make sure that people, you know, get something out of, out of doing that when, when they do. Uh, and it's always appreciated, of course, sharing the show and, and just trying to get, you know, other people on board with it, uh, is really, you know, it's for me, it, it's the the best thing that, that one could do to help out the show. So if you're interested in that, you know, that's that's something that can be done. Uh, but all right, let's get into it. Let's get into our episode here. We've got uh, random access. Uh, speaking of Encryptmas, uh, boy, there was a talk. I'll, I have a link in the show notes for you. OK, but there was a talk uh, given. It was released for Security Now 
uh, this week. And the talk was because, you know, Twit Security Now is, is a podcast with Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson. Uh, it's probably for me, it's it's definitely my favorite podcast, I think, out there, uh, just bar none. And on on that, they, they since Twit took the week off, they take Saturnalia off. They um, are just releasing like best ofs this week. And so the episode they released this week of Security Now was a talk that Steve Gibson gave at a conference and he was introducing Squirrel, which is his authentication technology that is I am so excited about this. Uh, I thought the talk was pretty good. It didn't get too technical until it got into questions. Uh, I, I thought I think anybody can really listen to it and kind of get the idea of of what Squirrel is, because I think this is one of the most important technologies getting developed right now. And myself, my own opinion, I don't really see any flaws with it, but he lays out what its purposes is. This is the interesting thing in this. That's why I want people to listen to it. And it's not long. It's about 25 minutes. It's really short. Uh, you know, th there are, um, you know, he lays out what it's used for, because I think that's what a lot of people get confused with is what is squirrel for? And well, wait, it doesn't address this problem. And maybe that's because it's not designed to address that problem. It's designed to address this one. So check that out. Uh, link in the show notes for that. Uh, let's see. Boy, just this week it was announced that in 2015, and it's already been made, the first real model of the Google driverless car is done and it will be on the road next year in 2015. Can you believe it? Uh, yes, I can completely believe it. And uh, I, boy, first off, the car looks positively ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it. I think some people are calling it the Koala car. Uh, it really has no, I don't know, it, it has no edge. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't really look like the future. It just looks cute. And now value is subjective. So maybe some people think that, well, a cute car is, is okay. Uh, but I really, I would have went with a completely different design. I would have went with like a Pontiac Banshee or something. I would have, if you wanted people to get on board with this, I would have made the car look so, so cool, you know, but I think this speaks, here's the point I want to bring up with this. Cause I think this speaks much to Google's attitude. And that is, is that this car looks so nondescript, so, uh, you know, basic that I think that they are very much just pushing a, more of their collectivism in that there is they that, you know, it, it doesn't feel individual. It doesn't look individual. You know, there's no individuality about the car. That's kind of the beauty of cars is that, uh, you know, this is how, okay. When the, in fact, it's very comparable, I think, to the model T to where this is very assembly line, very cut and dry, you know, uh, uh, of a car, the, the Google driverless car. Now, GM, all right, General Motors became a big deal way back when, you know, in, in the 30s and 40s, because they offered cars that you could individualize, you could choose color, you could choose whatever, not that, you know, that's the one area where I wouldn't don't mind the Model T. It's like you can have any, any color you want as long as it's black. Well, I wouldn't choose any other color. Okay, <laughs> but that's just me. But for a lot of people, that's what really allowed these companies to flourish was that they were they were combating the the collectivism in many ways that, uh, you know, that 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 Henry Ford was pushing 
uh, on or, you know, kind in a way is forcing upon people. And yes, so the market provides for that, blah, blah, blah. Someone will provide for, you know, Google to do that. Well, but unless Google locks down its map system and that's what the driverless car is so you know readily needed on. And then, uh, you know, they they end up with some degree of a monopoly in driverless cars. Of course, Toyota's developing it and all that. But I think this car, when you look at it and when you think about what Google's doing for the coming year and for the future, I think you realize just how much they they really don't give a rat's ass uh, about individuality and how they may be pushing kind of like Julian Assange warned uh, in his recent book about Google that uh, that Google is trying to create a standardized way, controlling way in which people interact with each other and standardization stands in complete contrast to decentralization and decentralization is the real one of the real keys to having genuine freedom uh, in your life and in your technology so you know i'm not i'm not excited about this i've never been excited about the google car but uh but you know just seeing it now makes it all the more uh disconcerting anyway uh, speaking of of Chrome, though, <laughs> of Google, uh, they came out with, uh, you know, in the Chrome Web Store, which is where you download extensions and apps for, say, your Chromebook or your Chrome web browser. Or, you know, if you're using Iron or the Komodo uh, Dragon web browser, you take your pick. Uh, in there, they, they did a best of for 2014, kind of the most downloaded and whatever. And I thought this was I was actually pleased to see this list because on this list of the most downloaded apps was Telegram which is kind of the the premier non Moxie Marlin spike based, uh, you know, uh, texting, chatting, uh, you know, file transferring uh, software app program cross platform that I recommend for, you know, iOS, Windows, Android, uh, you know, go down the list. Uh, And so Telegram was so I'm glad that this got a lot of clearly this got a lot of attention if it's standing amongst the who's who of Chrome ex- extensions. Uh, I was really pleased to see that. So uh, I'll put a link in the show notes again for Telegram. You can look into it. Uh, it works across all your devices. It's really, it's in my opinion, top-notch stuff for what we have available at this time. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that that was cool. Uh, now next, boy, this is actually, this was sent in to me by, uh, by Daryl W. Perry. Uh, of FPP.cc, and uh, I hear he just got off of his uh, vacation at the Keene Spiritual Retreat, and glad to have him back amongst the uh, <laughs> amongst the populace because uh, he's uh, really a, a super activist, no doubt. And uh, he he sent a story to me that was about the about BlackBerry and Boeing, as in you know Boeing seven forty seven. Black BlackBerry and Boeing have created an exploding phone. Or it's not it's not to call it an exploding phone is kind of a misnomer. Um, but I think that that the clickbait articles were kind of laying that out. What they've created is a security phone and they call it the Boeing Black. And this phone has a whole bunch of security features built into it. Uh, it has it's kind of its own operating system. It's Android based, though, uh, just like kind of like the uh, the black phone. Uh, where, you know, it has private OS or whatever. It, it runs off of a similar thing. But this has little tricks into where if someone tries to, essentially with this phone, if someone tries to pry it open, perhaps to get access to, you know, the innards, to the, you know, to the memory and whatever, uh, it will actually like self-destruct. So it doesn't really necessarily explode, but I, I think it, <laughs> you know, I mean, that'd be interesting if it, boom, you know, <laughs> 
just blows up on a table while somebody's trying to fix it or, or you know, trying to access the data on it. But it, um, you know, it does uh, melt. You know, I don't know that it melts down. However, that all works. They never really said uh, because there's there is uh, some degree of secrecy around what this phone can do. Uh, but essentially, it's going to, you know, eliminate itself. And so no one can access it now. Uh, ironically, of course, on the consumer level, we're probably never going to be able to get our hands on this sort of thing as much as the real people that need it are the everyday denizens of the planet, of course. But instead, this is just going to be offered to, uh, you know, co- corporations and governments uh, naturally. So and also, I mean, and it's interesting. I'd love to see someone come out with a consumer version of this, uh, but it's really been so hush hush. I mean, I, you know, really the article that I read about it, the guy said, this is all I can tell you about it. You know, <laughs> so the information scant, uh, but it is interesting because it really brings to fore just how much to this day, BlackBerry's encryption and security, uh, you know, protocols and systems are so revered. I mean, you got to understand BlackBerry and I've talked about BlackBerry a long time ago, back when BlackBerry Messenger, uh, which you can actually find me on, on BlackBerry Messenger, uh, you know, when that came out a couple of years ago, how, you know, governments you know, like the Russian government was banning the use of blackberries. I mean, because they can't look in them as far as we know, you know, and then of course, you know, president Obama still uses a blackberry. Why is that? Well, one has to wonder. Uh, so, but if you're interested in getting a blackberry, ironically, and I love talking a little hardware, they have two really great phones, uh, that are available now. They have the blackberry classic coming out, which looks like the classic blackberry but it's going to have all the you know modern bells and whistles and you know all the, the great uh, you know snapdragon processors and all that and of course there's the blackberry passport which i think is a beautiful beautiful phone talk about a workhorse machine because i mean the only thing i really these days that i want my phone by and large to do is play my music and you know my podcasts and uh, do emails and this is a machine that can do that in spades. You know, I, I don't have a whole lot of interest in uh, in social media being a part of, uh, you know, of, of my my mobile experience. And uh, so th- this is, you know, th- these are viable things now, in my opinion, especially if one is like we talked about in previous episodes, if one is starting to rely less on a lot of these services that uh, that the, the, the main the populace uh, seem to be using. Uh, so let, let's move on from that, though. Boy, we've got. <laughs> Uh, talk about the market in competition, apparently. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd call it the market. Uh, but Amazon Now, this is uh, fascinating. There was a story that a guy ordered, I don't know if he ordered some chocolate, some degree of candies on Amazon. I believe it was in New York City. And he said that when he ordered it on Amazon, he received his candies. In 23 minutes, not hours, 23 minutes, he couldn't, he said he couldn't have walked to the store and gotten back to work in that amount of time. And a bicycle messenger apparently brought it to him. So, so this is called Amazon now, which is kind of, kind of funny because that's, you know, it's playing off of like the idea of Google. Now everybody's pretty, you know, pretty well acquainted with Google now. And so they are definitely saying, well, we're going to come out with Amazon now, even though they're two very different services in a way, uh, they are, you know, they are going to compete 
for what is the first thing when people think of the word now? And, you know, honestly, in a way, you know, speaking of those semantics, I think that Google now really should kind of be called Google future, but that would be, that would come off as creepy because Google now's whole purpose is to answer things before uh, you even ask them or to find things before you even know you want to, to know about them or whatever. So, you know, may, maybe they'll do a, a bit of a name change in the future. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Amazon now, this is, they have literally, it's true. They have hired uh, bicycle uh, messengers, uh, you know, or, you know, people that, that, that transport stuff via bike or whatever. Th this is a service where they are getting stuff to you, you know, within less than an hour. I mean, this is mind boggling uh, what Amazon is doing here. And they are really delivering the goods in this way. It's interesting, too, though, but because uh, recently, in fact, there was a fantastic article in Business Insider where a guy interviewed uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, the CEO of Amazon. And Bezos pretty much said that if the U.S., because he also wants to use drones, not just these bike messengers and, and whatever other system, uh, he, he pretty much said that if, if the U.S. government doesn't let him use drones, he'll just start developing in every other part of the world. And he really kind of made the threat that I will make Amazon will make the U.S. a second rate country. If if the government doesn't play ball with Amazon. And uh, I, I wonder, I mean, what what do you do when you're sitting in the United States and you look across the pond and you see people not even having to leave their house? Of course, I think leaving one's house is a fine thing. OK, but not even leaving their house and a drone just flies up and drops off their new laptop to them. I mean, aren't you going to be like, holy shit, Europe is the future. Yeah, that's what you're going to think. And so, you know, th this is going to get really interesting and it, it does kind of make the cases, you know, to, to what degree, who's really holding all the power, you know, is it the government? Is it the businesses, you know, who, who's pulling all the strings and uh, you know, certainly one feeds the other, uh, you know, and vice versa, no doubt about that. Okay. Um, but who boy, corporatism uh, <laughs> uh, and Google express of course is just trying to answer a lot of this. Uh, but uh, Google express, I, I don't think they're, they're, I haven't heard the case yet where Google Express, which is kind of like Amazon now, but it's Google's version of it. I haven't yet heard the case where somehow somebody got something in 23 minutes. I mean, damn, is that amazing? <laughs> so anyway, th there it is. It, you know, it's it's happening <laughs> in that regard. And, I, you know, I could get into like the ideas that I don't know that all this delivery is, is such a, a wonderful thing, um, but that that's another story for future episodes of sovereign tech. Uh, but let's get into, you know, speaking of, I mean, we were just talking about there about the future. Uh, what would things look like across the pond? Well, I have a better question for you. What would things look like across the sea of stars? And that's because, and this is interesting. This may be, in fact, I, I feel slightly vindicated because this might be the most sent in story to sovereign tech in history, uh, in the history of the show. And I think I know why it is because a lot of people had said why And this, this did the rounds make no mistake. It's not like this was a, you know, really like a hidden story by any means. This was kind of big news for the day. And 
why I think it got sent in is because on the episode of 2099, whichever way you listen to that, there's a special, special number 40, which is 2099, or there's episode 99 beats, same stuff. I talked about how Venus was going to get colonized by the, the denizens of the permanent autonomous zones, by the anarchists. Okay. And in that, I'll admit that I had said that they were actually going to more or less colonize the actual terrestrial part of Venus. Uh, and, you know, because I said, well, it's, it's all a lie underneath the cloud layer. Actually, everything's just fine. It's kind of like living on in Florida and blah, blah, blah. And this was about, you know, when I released 99B, what is that, a, a month, two months ago now? Suddenly, out of nowhere, NASA starts saying, in fact, this is the, the article from CNET here, NASA wants to build a floating city above the clouds of Venus. Now, that's interesting. And I think this is why everybody was kind of sharing this. They, they're, you know, some emailers were saying, Stallion, you're talking about floating cities and colonizing Venus. You know, <laughs> it's like, what did you know? And, well, I didn't know anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, and actually, the floating cities were more to be on, on Earth, not on, you know, not on Venus. But it did. It was an interesting amalgamation of the ideas. And, I, you, know, you know, no, NASA didn't. I, I'm fairly certain that nobody, or at least if you do, if you work for NASA and you listen to my show, please send me an email. Send the PGP key for Brian at ZomiOfflineGames.com is, uh, is on the MIT server. Please get that. It's in the show notes as well at SovereignTech.com. Uh, you know, and, and let me know. Because, <laughs> but no, NASA is, does not listen to Sovereign Tech. And so this is just a bit of fortuitousness. That's all. And um, yeah, they're, they're really talking about doing this about having floating cities above the cloud layer on, uh, on Venus. So I'm going to read a bit of the story here, and uh, we'll talk about it. A number of agencies, including, of course, NASA, are focusing solar system exploration efforts on Mars. At first glance, though, Mars doesn't really seem like the best candidate. Venus is much closer, at a distance that ranges between 38 million kilometers and 261 million kilometers, compared to Mars's 56 million to 401 million kilometers, it's Earth. It's Earth's closest neighbor. Now that's you know the variance of you know d- depending on where it is the sun, how long it would take to get there. Either way, it's a closer trip. It's also comparable in size to Earth, a radius of uh, so many yeah blah blah blah, and has a similar density and chemical composition. But everything else about it makes it almost utterly unvisitable. While probes have been sent to the planet's surface, they lasted, at most, just two hours before surface conditions on Venus destroyed them. These conditions include an atmospheric pressure up to 92 times greater than Earth's, uh, a mean temperature of 462 degrees Celsius, that's uh, 863 degrees in Fahrenheit, uh, extreme volcanic activity, an extremely dense atmosphere consisting mostly of carbon dioxide with a small amount of nitrogen, and a cloud layer made up of sulfuric acid. In short, Venus, not a top holiday destination, really. NASA thinks it might have a solution that will allow sending humans up to check it out, though. Cloud City. Not unlike Bespin from Empire Strikes Back, right? The high-altitude Venus operational concept, or HAVOC, is a conceptual spacecraft designed by the team at the Systems Analysis and Concepts Directorate at NASA Langley Research Center for the purposes of Venusian exploration. 
This lighter-than-air rocket would be designed to sit above the acidic clouds for a period of around 30 days, allowing a team of astronauts to collect data about the planet's atmosphere. While the surface of Venus would destroy a human, hovering above its clouds at, at an altitude of around 50 kilometers, is, or 30 miles, is set uh, is a set of conditions similar to Earth. Its atmospheric pressure is comparable, and its gravity is slightly lower, which would allow long, longer-term stays, effectively eliminating the ailments that occur during long-term stays in zero-G. Temperature is about 75 degrees Celsius, which is hotter than is strictly uh, comfortable. That I think that that's like 160 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that, uh, but would still be manageable. Finally, the atmosphere at that altitude offers protection from solar radiation comparable to living in Canada. The mission would, NASA outlined to the IEEE spectrum, begin with a robotic probe deployed to Venus to perform uh, initial checks and investigations. With the return of this data, a crewed mission would spend 30 days floating above the planet, followed by missions that would see two teams of two astronauts spending a year each. The end goal would be a permanent human presence in a floating cloud city. While the city would be fixed, the exploration would be made possible with a mobile unit, a crude 130-meter-long Zeppelin filled with helium, uh, accompanied by a smaller 31-meter robotic Zeppelin. This Zeppelin would take advantage of Venus's closer proximity to the sun. Its top would be adorned with over 1,000 square meters of solar panels for power. And it's all designed to be built using the existing, using existing, this is the key, this is so key right here, using existing or near to existing technology. Although, of course, it's at least a decade or two from actual implementation. But should it come to fruition, it may provide another way to see humanity inhabit the universe beyond Earth. The next step would be performing simulations of Venusian conditions on Earth, and NASA is already across it, with a paper that outlines the current capabilities and facilities for per performing such just such tests. Venus has a value as a definition as a destination or has value as a destination in and of itself for exploration and colonization, but it's also complementary to current Mars plans, said Chris Jones of the Langley Research Center. Quote, if you did Venus first, you could get a leg up on advancing those technologies and those capabilities ahead of doing a human-scale Mars mission. It's a chance to do a practice run, if you will, of going to Mars. Now, this is really fascinating to me. And honestly... This is deserving of excitement, extreme excitement. I feel like <laughs> I feel like so often I just, you know, complain and complain and complain and knock down new technology and new ideas and all this stuff on, on sovereign tech and that there's, you know, no good news and all of this. Well, this is good news, in my opinion, because it opens up, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, intentional communities. OK, and how boy. Yeah. You know, and some people, in fact, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I, we often joke. It's like, where are we going to get our spaceship? You know, that's that's really what we need. We just need a spaceship to get the hell off of this planet because there's no hope. Well. Here's hope. <laughs> here's hope in that this was the and the most beautiful part of all this. And there's links uh, you can go to SovereignTech.com, look in the show notes, and there's links, you know, within this article from CNET that show a lot of it out. But the thing is, is that all of this is possible right now. If a person had the means, the technology exists to where you really could 
granted, you'd want to test it out. You know, you don't necessarily want to be guinea pigging life on Venus. But you really could pull it off. You could live so far away from every government, you know, every control and domination structure out there. On Venus. Not even Mars. And it'd be a relatively short trip, especially compared to Mars. Oh, man. (laughs) I'll admit, I read this and my mind just started going all over the place. Like, wow, what a possibility, you know, to say that, yeah, you really could, you know, say you get your your group of anarchists, you know, it'd be the Free Venus Project. Of course, the term Venus Project kind of has some uh, some perhaps ugly uh, connotations to it. But all the same, you really could pull this off right now. Now, I think a lot of people would want to, you know, theorize saying, well, you know, would they even. All right. The biggest thing that would get in the way of this is, of course, anything getting launched into space has to pass so many permits. uh, And I think if anything tried to in a rogue fashion, perhaps launch into space, it would probably get shot down. Uh, by the U.S. government or some other government, unless, of course, if you paid, uh, you know, somebody off somewhere like in Russia or whatever, just to get your get your stuff into the air (laughs) and somehow they allowed for it. But you could go do this, you know, again, with enough means you it could happen right now to where you could be living. You know, you could create a a proverbial floating city. How much would that cost? Oh, hell, I, I have no idea. Okay, but the point is, is that it is plausible. It is plausible right now with, you know, modern technology for humans to live a very, you know, granted, if you stepped outside, okay, of the airship, you know, and it's 160 degrees, uh, you know, granted, that's that's going to be awfully hot and you're not going to last long with that sort of thing. But I wouldn't think you need half of what you need as far as conditions, as far as, uh, you know, like a a kind of a, a suit to go out with that you would require on Mars. So in every way, it's far more practical to, you know, to, to colonize, to start colonizing, uh, you know, or living on colonizing, you know, as reference to colonialism. I don't want to go down that road. OK, but, <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? You, I hope everybody knows, you know, how I feel about, you know, the idea of colonialism and neocolonialism. Uh, but, you know, going to Venus. Yeah, I mean, you could do it right now. It could happen. And it's funny because I hear a lot of people, there's so many people that say, oh yeah, your city in the clouds, keep dreaming, buddy. No, it's not a dream anymore. It's real. It could happen. You know, it could be done. Bill Gates could pull it off. Uh, You know, maybe Elon could pull it off. I mean, a whole, you know, a whole slew of people on this planet. And yes, I understand the problems of the fact that why are they the only people that could do it? Okay. But my point is, is that they could do it. God, that's exciting. That's really exciting. And then now the other problems, of course, you know, uh, what happens when you go to another planet and you're living on another planet and, uh, you know, you don't have that, uh, that, ex- that, that, that experience with, with terra firma, you know, you're not, uh, your, your hands aren't in the dirt and you know, what could health problems occur out of that? Well, I, I suppose that leads to the question of what exactly would it look like when, you know, how, how do you eat, you know, how do you sustainably eat on those things? Well, I think there's been a lot of, you know, studies in hydroponics, perhaps even I've heard people talk about systems where you could still eat meat with a certain degree of, of, uh, you know, of cattle that you could bring to where you could do uh, kind of a circular, 
uh, system of really a, a, a circle of life with with cows. And, you know, it's an incredible idea. So my point is, is that all of this is possible. OK, to do. And I think that whether it's for reasons of looking for freedom or not. It's important for and we're, we'll talk a little bit more about this during uh, during important messages. But it's important for humanity to become at least a two planet species, because that opens up so many possibilities. And I think it will give a lot of people perspective. Now, is NASA, you know, would 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 militaries make their way to Venus and destroy any, you know, any Venusian anarchist, you know, colony there or whatever? Uh, Maybe. Maybe that's something we need to explore. But at the end of the day, it would be such an expensive effort for people to do that, that I wouldn't think that it would really be worth it at all. So this is exciting. I mean, picture, let your dreams run wild with what life could be like in the clouds. And, you know, I'm actually, I want to to turn over. I, I think there's a lot of people who maybe would might feel a little funny about this, you know, and saying that earth is all we've got. Well, it's true right now. Earth is all we have, but we're seeing the incredible chance for that to be true. No longer. And perhaps if one takes it all the way, the chance for some real freedom, but to really explain the, the nature of all of this, I'm going to turn it over to a one-time hero of mine, Carl Sagan. We were hunters and foragers. The frontier was everywhere. We were bounded only by the earth and the ocean and the sky. The open road still softly calls. Our little terraqueous globe is the madhouse of those hundred thousand millions of worlds. We who cannot even put our own planetary home in order, riven with rivalries and hatreds, are we to venture out into space? By the time we're ready to settle even the nearest other planetary systems, we will have changed. The simple passage of so many generations will have changed us. Necessity will have changed us. We're an adaptable species. It will not be we who reach Alpha Centauri and the other nearby stars. It will be a species very like us, but with more of our strengths and fewer of our weaknesses. More confident, far-seeing, capable, and prudent. For all our failings, Despite our limitations and fallibilities, we humans are capable of greatness. What new wonders, undreamt of in our time, will we have wrought in another generation, and another? How far will our nomadic species have wandered by the end of the next century, and the next millennium? Our remote descendants, safely arrayed on many worlds through the solar system 
and beyond will be unified by their common heritage, by their regard for their home planet, and by the knowledge that whatever other life may be, the only humans in all the universe come from Earth. They will gaze up and strain to find the blue dot in their skies. They will marvel at how vulnerable the repository of all our potential once was, how perilous our infancy, how humble our beginnings, how many rivers we had to cross before we found our way. Behind the wall of history, there is a story that has never been told. A story of a world that ended, only to usher in the beginning of our own. This is a time that ancient tomes could only describe in metaphor. Prepare for the very first video game from Zomia Offline Games, Hyperchronius. Hyperchronius will allow you to experience a time beyond your imagination in a fully interactive 16-bit, two-dimensional role-playing experience. Hyperchronius. Know the past, and you can know the future. From Zomia Offline Games. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you'll excuse me. Uh, you're not Natalia. Who are you? Oh, hello, Mr. Sovereign. Natalia is on another mission. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to debrief you. I'd love for you to debrief me, but, uh, how did you get in my room? The bellboy let me in. Well, hooray for the bellboy. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette. Uh, but before I get into that, I just want to say, you know, I know, I recognize how that idea of, you know, colonizing Venus and all of this, and perhaps even for anarchists to do it as a sense of, you know, to get a degree of freedom or whatever, may sound very pie in the sky. Well, as I always say, I've had pie in the sky, and it was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't like care for that uh, kind of derogatory, you know, that kind of derision. Uh, but here it is. I'm giving you permission to go ahead and think in those wild ways, you know, to, to imagine what it could possibly be like to, you know, go out there to explore space for one and then for two to have your, you know, your real freedom. There was a great book, I think it was by Eric Russell, uh, which was based off of a short story that he had done uh, called The Great, but the, the book is called The Great Explosion. It's from the 50s. And this book, you know, talks about where humans start traveling the stars. 
uh, very inexpensively, very, you know, it, it becomes a, a very easy thing to do. And some of the planets that they end up, you know, colonizing uh, become, you know, very much, you know, liber- libertarian paradise. It becomes lib pair. And uh, and it's it's a great read. And I so this isn't a new idea, you know, and I think it's one that's genuinely worth, you know, looking at and exploring and supporting is, you know, can, you know, independent groups decide to, you know, go go live off on some floating city on another planet, uh, because it's not just possible on Venus. I mean, this could be done on Hypercronius or I, uh, I mean, uh, Uranus, sorry. Uh, it could be done there. It could be done on, uh, all kinds of planets where the conditions would be relatively similar. Of course, Venus is really fortuitous because of its uh, proximity to the sun, which allows for, you know, certain te- weather conditions as well as the ability to get a shit ton of, of solar energy on, the, you know, <laughs> way more than you could even get on Earth uh, with ease. So anyway, uh, you know, go ahead. Think about that. Go nuts with the idea. I, there's no harm in it. Uh, these people who keep saying, it's like, oh, well, you keep dreaming there, buddy. You know, guess what? Dreams are becoming reality right now. OK, and we're talking about them on Sovereign Tech. So anyway, uh, let's get into talk about dreams becoming reality. Uh, Something that comes up often on the show are the ideas of post scarcity and someone who is by no means uh, a liberty minded individual has made the case in a very famous, in a very popular venue. And this is from venture beat. And it is a, a bit of a guest blog by Vivek Wadhawa. I, might have said that wrong, but it's our future of unlimited wealth and joblessness. And we'll start reading this. This is a bit of a lengthy article, but we'll get through it. Technology advances are making amazing things possible. We finally have a chance to solve the problems that have long plagued humanity, such as hunger, disease, energy, and education. The same technologies that make this abundance possible are, however, setting the stage for the elimination of the majority of human jobs. Within two decades, we will have almost unlimited energy, food, and clean water. Within two decades. I don't know if I agree with this guy, but but let's keep going. Advances in medicine will allow us to live longer and healthier lives. Robots will drive our cars, manufacture our goods, and do our chores. There won't be much work for human beings. Self-driving cars will be commercially available by the end of this decade and will eventually displace human drivers, just as automobiles displace the horse and buggy, and will eliminate the jobs of taxi, bus, and truck drivers. Drones will take, will take the jobs of postmen and delivery people. The debates of the next decade will be about whether we should allow human beings to, to drive at all on public roads. The pesky humans crash into each other, suffer from road rage, rush headlong into traffic jams, and need to be monitored by, tra- monitored by traffic police. Yes, we won't need traffic cops either. Robots are already replacing manufacturing workers. Industrial robots have advanced to the point at which they can do the same physical work as human beings. The operating cost of some robots is now less than the salary of an average Chinese worker. And unlike human beings, robots don't complain, join labor unions, or get distracted. They readily work 24 hours a day and require minimal maintenance. Robots will also take the jobs of farmers, pharmacists, and grocery clerks. Medical sensors in our smartphones, clothing, and bathrooms will soon be monitoring our health on a minute-to-minute basis. Combined with electronic medical records and genetic and lifestyle data, these will provide enough information for physicians to focus on preventing disease rather than curing it. 
If medications are needed, they can be prescribed based on a person's genome rather than a one-size-fits-all basis as they are today. The problem is that there is now so much information that humans cannot effectively analyze it. But artificial intelligence-based physicians, such as IBM Watson, can. The role of the doctor becomes to provide comfort and compassion, not to diagnose disease or to prescribe medications. In other words, computers will be also take talking or taking over some of our jobs of our doctors, and we don't need as many human doctors as we have today. It will be like the future that Autodesk CEO Carl Bass once described to me. The factory, quote, this is a quote, the factory of the future will have only two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog. The dog will be there to keep the man from touching the equipment, end quote. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> governments, reading on, governments will not be able to create the jobs or slow down this progress. They can barely keep up with the advances that are happening in technology, let alone develop economic policies for employment. Even the courts are struggling to understand the legal and ethical issues of advancing technologies. Neither they nor our policymakers have come to grips with how to protect our data and personal information. Control cable and or control cable and Internet monopolies regulate advances in genetics and medicine and tax the sharing economy that companies such as Uber and Airbnb belong to. How are policymakers going to grapple with entire industries disruptions in periods that are shorter than election cycles? The industrial age lasted a century and it's a consequent and its consequent changes have happened over generations. Now we have startups in Silicon Valley shaking up bedrock industries such as cable and broadcasting, hotels and transportation. The writing is clearly on the wall about what lies ahead. Yet even the most brilliant economists and futurists don't know what to do about it. The greatest futurist of our time, Ray Kurzweil, said to me in a debate we had about the job about jobs that, quote, automation always eliminates more jobs than it creates. If you only look at the circumstances narrowly surrounding the automation, that's what the Luddites saw in the early 19th century in the textile industry in England. The new jobs came from increased prosperity and new industries that were not seen, end quote. Kurzweil's key argument was that just as we could not predict the types of jobs that were that were created, we can't predict what is to come. Kurzweil is right, but the problem is that no matter what the jobs of the future are, they will surely require greater skill and education as robots can do all the grunt work. Manufacturers who want to bring production back already complain that they can't find enough skilled workers in the U.S. for their automated factories. Uh, technology companies that that write the software also complain that about shortages of workers with the skills that they need. We won't be able to retrain the majority of the workforce fast enough to take the new jobs in emerging industries. During the Industrial Revolution, it was the younger generations who were trained, not the older workers. The only solution that I see is a shrinking work week. We may perhaps be working for 10 to 20 hours a week instead of 40, the 40 we do today. And with the prices of necessities and of what we today consider luxury goods dropping exponentially, we may not need the entire population to be working. There is surely a possibility for social unrest because of this, but we could also create the utopian future we have long dreamed of with a large part of humanity focused on creativity and enlightenment. Regardless, at best, we have 10 to 15 years in which there is a role for humans. The number of available jobs will actually increase in the U.S. and Europe before it decreases. 
China is out of time because it has a manufacturing-based economy, and those jobs are already disappearing. Ironically, China is accelerating this demise by embracing robotics and 3D printing. As manufacturing comes back to the U.S., new factories need to be built, robots need to be programmed, and new infrastructure needs to be developed. To install new hardware and software on existing cars to make them self-driving, we will need many new auto mechanics. We need to manufacture the new medical sensors, install increasingly efficient solar panels, and write new automation software. So the future is very bright for some countries in the short term. But in the long term, it is uncertain for all. The utopian Star Trek future we have long dreamed about is finally within sight. The only question is whether the human race will focus on uplifting itself through knowledge in the arts or self-destruct because it doesn't know what to do with itself. Wow. So there's a lot in there uh, and a lot, honestly, that I completely disagree with. First off, I think that saying two decades, um, you know, that, that, that we would have that future within two decades, I think is ludicrous. That is not going to happen with governments around. And the other thing is this, and this is a point that I think he's missing. Clearly, this writer does not understand how the world actually operates. You can't tax robots. And so if you think governments are going to allow for so much of that automation, yeah, no way. <laughs> okay, that's the first person that's going to start, you know, regulating against all of this shit. Now, like we mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, like Jeff Bezos says, if the United States won't let me do it, I'll go elsewhere. Are people going to go elsewhere to, you know, do their production and all that and somehow still end up selling it off to other people in other countries? You know, whatever products come out of this, you know, heavily roboticized uh, economy. Maybe, you know, maybe something like that will will get pulled off. Um, you know, I mean, so many things come to mind for me when when I read this, uh, but I, I don't. Larry Page, speaking of another CEO, the CEO of Google, Larry Page, he actually he did an article and I talked about it previously on Sovereign Tech. He, he did an article where he was very much saying the same thing, that he was working on creating a future where, yeah, guess what? Things are going to be jobless, but it's not going to matter because everything's going to be so cheap and blah, 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 you know, and, and you only have to work. So, you know, only a few hours, you know, if any, if barely any at all uh, to do things. And, you know, I agree that this is kind of the area where I actually, I agree with, with most of these guys is that I think in the future, there will be, you know, depending on, on how society goes in the future, you will have to work less hours. Uh, these guys are not the originators in that theory. Uh, People like Kevin Carson and some others often talk about how if there weren't governments and you didn't have to deal with inflation, if you didn't have to deal with the financial system as it stands today, that, yeah, you would only have to work a few hours a week, not 40. OK, so but it's funny because here's part of the issue is that they're all looking at technology to solve a lot of this, like, like, you know, these, this really advanced technology and roboticism and all that to solve a lot of these issues. When really, if they just put an end to a lot of the, the domination, you know, a lot, a lot of domination systems, a lot of, you know, get rid of government and all of that. Most of what they're talking about, this good life that people could be living could be achieved. 
not by producing, you know, robots and, and, and all of this or attaching our medical history to artificial intelligence like IBM Watson, which, boy, let me tell you how bad of an idea I think that is. Well, let me not tell you now. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But you can have all that right now. With, you know, little, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't have to manufacture anything. And it's amazing that there's such a blind spot. These people who write like, oh, I have this grand vision, you know, and all this. And yet they just have these massive blind spots. Now, at the end of it, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that the economy as it stands is in uh, some deep trouble. Okay, at least, you know, for the people that actually have skin in the game in the economy, that that businesses are in quite a bit of trouble and they need to come up with that next thing. Okay, because the wearables aren't taking off as well as they should. Uh, Smartphones, you know, are getting to the point to where you can't really make a whole lot of money off of them. And so what's the next you know, what's the next industry to get created? And I think the next industry to really get created are exactly what this guy described to where robots that replace human jobs are going to be the next thing. Okay. And so by and large, I think a lot of the hype and excitement around this is just to create a new industry. Is there anything wrong with creating a new industry? No. Okay. But what there is something wrong is when you're selling that industry to people on bullshit premises. That's where there's something wrong. You know, I've, I've had, I've had, uh, you know, from, from iRobot, I've had their, uh, you know, the Roomba. It didn't do a very good job. It'll take a while before these things, you know, actually end up probably, you know, would end up doing a good job of all of that. So, but, you know, to get to the point of, of, of the joblessness, uh, I really think that, I, I more or less agree with Kurzweil that we don't know, you know, what jobs would end up being created. Uh, but it also brings to, to point for me the importance of, you know, we've talked about this many times and I'm not the first one to say it, that don't teach your kid another language like Spanish. Teach them a programming language because that's going to be key to them making their way in the world. And really, if these guys like this guest blogger for VentureBeat or even, you know, Bezos or Larry Page, as they have said in their own words, if they get the world they want, we're going to need a whole lot of programmers. And so that that's really a kind of a, a guaranteed way, you know, to, to get a job. And even, you know, I love how Leo Laporte, uh, I quote this all the time where he said, look, you know, he, he said that young people today know if they don't create their own jobs, that there aren't going to be any there for them. So people are kind of, they're prepared for this to kind of happen. But I, I really, there, there's a tough paradigm there as to where I think governments have, to, you know, they run off of money, just like uh, seemingly anything else in the world today. And there's no way they're going to allow, you know, their tax dollars to, you know, to disappear. And so I wonder how exactly all that gets handled. And I, I definitely, you know, like, like some of these guys in this blog post, I don't really have an answer. I, you know, what that looks like in the future, you know, how does government continue to fund itself? Uh, you know, how, how does all that happen? I'm not sure, but it's true. We're heading into an incredibly, you know, an, an age where, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they talk about, well, we'll need auto mechanics to fix stuff. You know, that's going to create jobs or whatever. Yeah, but this is something I said a long time ago. I said, 
you know, I mean, I, I can, I can work on a car. I work on my, my own cars. I always have, uh, you know, I, and I can do just about anything with them. Okay. But it was ironic because I had said to, uh, you know, at times, some things you take it to the garage for. And I said to the guy at the garage, you know, you know, cause I was working at, at, uh, at a computer company at the time. And I said, I'm actually going to be more qualified for this job than you are in the coming years. Because it's all, everything's just, just running off of, you know, software and software becomes the issue and software is buggy uh, and all of this. And that's kind of a problem is that I don't think people are really considering at the same time that, yes, humans can fail too. Uh, but what, what's the old saying? To err is human, but, <laughs> but to really fuck up, you need a computer. And, and I think, I think, you know, nobody's really considering that. And I think that also... Well, I really feel like that there's something, you know, it goes back to what I was talking about with Google, to where you are losing perhaps the very reason to, not that the accumulation of things is the best, you know, system within which to want stuff, but I think for anything to mean anything to anyone, I think that that meaning comes from at the end of the day, I think that meaning comes from the fact of, uh, you know, that, that, that it had a human element, that some human took their most precious of commodity, that being time, and put it towards something that means something to you. And I think that a lot of our, you know, automation and, and like the Google car, look, all of them looking the goddamn same. And, you know, and, and you know, all, all the... <laughs> There's, there's a real lack of human touch. And I, you know, I kind of, I worry about that uh, because I, I think people, I think it, it messes with our empathy. I think it, I don't know, it eliminates individuality. And I think it lends itself to a collective uh, way of thinking. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think, you know, collective thinking is what's gotten us into so many messes in the first place. And also, you know, the other issue, I mean, to even bring up is that, I mean, when does this apply to armies? You know, when does Jeff Bezos get his own private army? When do some libertarians get their own robotic private army? Yeah, I worry. I'm not against the idea of robots, but I think some serious explanation or exploration and perhaps some serious work on the human condition needs to be addressed before we go relying on something else. I'll be back with more. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. Like many of you, I've known that cold sores or fever blisters in the mouth are a form of herpes, but I've always assumed that genital herpes is so much worse. Well, the fact is, these two forms of herpes are incredibly similar, and the symptoms each causes are also similar. So, why the added stigma for genital herpes? Why do we have special dating sites for people who have herpes in the crotch, while we don't have the same thing for people who have herpes in the mouth? On the website of the American Social Health Association, it says that most of the 50 million Americans who have genital herpes don't even know they have it. Well, if most people who have genital herpes don't know they have it, then most don't have severe symptoms. Yet, 
We behave as if genital herpes is a terrible disease. Perhaps that's because it shows up below the belt as opposed to above. This is not to minimize the impact of genital herpes. It can be very bothersome for some people. So if you know you have it, learn all you can about it and be sure to inform a potential partner. And if you don't have it, try to protect yourself from getting it. But I think the same should be true for oral herpes, which could turn out to be the herpes we start worrying about more, given its proximity to the brain. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. I just received an encrypted message from Decentral with your next mission, and it looks like I'm coming along. Why, Elizabeth, I wouldn't have it any other way. You're clearly good at staying on top of things. It helps when one's partner is very skilled. No, no, we can have more fun later. What does the message say? Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, and I got a couple of great ones to get through. Um, but I want to address just a little bit more about the the, the robotic stuff, uh, you know, and, and this uh, this economy. And, you know... <sighs> I, I read from a lot of people, including like uh, like Jeffrey Tucker, I, and I love Jeffrey Tucker, but, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of guys who are saying, oh, well, look how cheap everything is today. This is amazing. This is the market in action. This is capitalism in action. You know, something I've been bitching about for to, to, to Stephanie for like a, at least a couple months now is got T-shirts just aren't made the same way anymore. Like T-shirts suck. They First off, I, I can barely fit my arms in them. These days, because everything's made with that, you know, un, with that collective ideal or they're made perhaps, you know, in another country where, you know, people may be on the average smaller or something like that, whatever the case may be. But they're all made like we're all the same size or something. But that's the thing is the humans are not all the same size. You cannot you, you really can't. Like I've said many times, you can't just code everything. And I don't think you can just roboticize everything. There are some things that require a real individual touch. And then people say, well, maybe robotics, you know, robots will uh, will allow for that individuality at an incredibly cheap price. I'd like to see the proof of that, because I'm telling you, like the T-shirts today are paper thin. They're not as soft as they used to be. And please, you can email me. Okay, you, or you can bit message me. That's what important messages is all about. Uh, Brian at zomiofflinegames.com or my bit message address is in the show notes or give me on Twitter, whatever. Okay, and t- you tell me that the shirts you're wearing right now are somehow, I mean, just think about it. And you'll remember in the 90s, it's like, yeah, you know, that big Johnson shirt. God damn, that was thick and it felt good to wear. Thing lasted forever. So, yeah, I get it. Well, you know, cheaper production, that's all much better. Nah. What's that? capitalism yay capitalism no <laughs> no 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 there's a reason etsy was huge and even etsy's going downhill now but all right that that's another story um i want to let, let's see i'll, I'll address the, we'll get into this because this is kind of relative I've, I've got two questions here uh and this is the second part of a larger message but i'm happy to get to it now and it's, it's relative to, to what we we're talking about um okay so to the piece on artificial intelligence this is when i was talking about ai a little while back My mind really got spinning on this one when you mentioned the importance of developing a defense against runaway AI. And just to to give you a quick uh, shot on this, uh, a friend and I were discussing that, you know, artificial intelligence we didn't think was was a good idea, especially considering, you know, humans programming it and how it might feel about, you know, the way that humans interact. It's like, wow, these incredibly illogical creatures, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And uh, a lot of people are talking about this. uh, uh, that, you know, Nick Bostrom and, and some others saying that, man, you know, 
we might, AI is a ticking time bomb and we might just want to go put it back in the room and walk away. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, and stop messing with it. But anyway, um, and so I had, we had theorized that perhaps what needs to be made before an AI gets unleashed is make an, not an artificial intelligence, but make a system, software, hardware, whatever, that is designed to defend against, to defend humans against an artificial intelligence that may not necessarily go awry, but might not have empathy or whatever. And essentially somehow perhaps, you know, encode empathy into this and just make it the sole basis of that and have it be a check, you know, kind of like a queen to the king on, on a, on a chessboard, keep it in checkmate from, you know, just wiping everybody out that maybe that that's necessary. So that that's, that was the long and short of what I talked about on sovereign tech in the past reading on mix that in with the recent Orion test launch and increasing talk about a manned mission to Mars. And I start thinking about how we might use other planets as testing grounds for all sorts of new and amazing slash terrifying AI GMOs, uh, terraforming transhuman modifications, etc. And that's ironic that we bring this up now, since we were talking about how we could go to Venus and, and do the very thing that this, uh, this messenger is talking about the quote unquote air gap between planets serves as well as protection against runaway experiments. And if, uh, or when things get really bad on a given planet, we could just reboot the sucker. <laughs> I can see it now. Thousands of activists, uh, me included organizing to save the misunderstood monsters from the cataclysm. My immediate next hypothesis is that we ourselves are living in exactly the same sort of air gapped testing site and that there's some mad scientist version of judgment day looming when our time will be up and we'll be either be released into the universe as free peace loving beings or rebooted along with the rest of the failed projects. Damn. And I'm not even religious <laughs> or maybe we might all be stuck inside a virtual box. That's a virtual machine on a computer of sorts defended against in the very same way. We might spin up a virtualized cage for that AI worm. We'll all be able to download soon. Okay. That's depressing. Any chance you could send Natalia or Elizabeth over to my, over to help me clear my head <laughs> or to help clear my head. <laughs> uh, well, Elizabeth and, uh, and Natalia are a little busy with Stephanie right now. So it, Sorry, BitMessenger, I can't uh, can't go sending that or send or, you know, I can't send them on mission over to you. Uh, but, but this is a great message. This is a, this is really fascinating stuff to discuss. And I like the idea of air gapped systems. That's really in, in technical, you know, in technological terms, that's very much what I would want for, you know, intentional communities that we talk about all the time is having an air gap. And yeah. <sighs> Yeah, this gets into funny areas where if, you know, say you wanted to try out, you know, transhuman technologies and whatever on another planet, because if they happen to go wrong, you'll be fine. Of course, then it gets into, well, what if they could, you know, get off the planet and then come to Earth and conquer it or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, whatever happens out of that. Uh, I'm intrigued by this idea. And it really does lay out the idea that we mentioned earlier. OK, where, you know, and that Carl Sagan has said many times that humanity needs to be a two planet species, because if something goes wrong in one place, you know, it, it will live on somewhere else. And I think this is really important because and I know not everybody agrees with me, but I think we're pretty goddamn rare. You know, I, I don't think, 
you know, the, the Fermi paradox that a lot of people have been addressing recently, and I'm not sure why, because we've been talking about it on Sovereign Tech for, you know, two years now, uh, almost to the day. We're, we're about on the, on the two-year anniversary of the show. Uh, you know, this isn't new. I've always said this. Look, look humans are, are exceptional. Um, and, and yes, and the earth is exceptional too, you know, and I, that just brings a point to me real quick that I want to mention is that I think that a lot of people, a lot of, especially a lot of libertarians, a lot of liberty minded people, uh, think in this way, and this is a good way to think, there's nothing wrong with what, what, with what this emailer is saying. And I know he doesn't feel this way. I, I know for a fact he doesn't feel this way. Okay. But I think a lot of them say, well, we can just go to another planet. So if we fuck up things on earth, who cares? You know, like environmental issues, or, you know, ecological issues, those being the real ones, not the, the, uh, the religion of environmentalism, you know, but, uh, you know, ecological issues eh, fuck it, you know, we'll just, we'll go to another planet if, if we screw this one up and boy, that's, I, I think that's where a lot of the, the lack of concern for ecological issues comes from is that they think, yeah, the market will solve it. We'll just go to another planet. And while that's certainly true. I'd, I'd be far more sympathetic to the idea of let's try this stuff out on other planets and let's leave Earth alone. Let's leave the pale blue dot, this jewel in the universe alone, because there may not be many of these jewels. And I think the evidence stands up that there aren't many planets like Earth. And so, yes, I am with the messenger. Yeah, if we're going to if we want to experiment with this stuff, let's go elsewhere and do it. Let's air gap the systems uh, as best we can. And I thought that was a really interesting I, you know, idea. Um, the artificial intelligence thing, I, I don't know that, that that's a good idea any, any way you slice it. And again, I'm also I'm I'm more and more convinced all the time that really A.I., already exists. And I'm reminded of the, the Dune prequels, the, the book series Dune by Frank Herbert. There were a prequel series written by his son, Brian Herbert, as well as Kevin J. Anderson. And in that they talk about, um, you know, with AI, they talk about this, what they call the Butlerian Jihad or the Butlerian Jihad, where there was a rebellion against a AI that took over the fate of humanity. And in fact, uh, you know, there, there's a commandment, I think, in the in the uh, the Orange Catholic Bible in Dune. It's thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind that they have in that because of, you know, the, the concern of, of that happening. Uh, and and it's interesting because there's another there's a great quote and I've quoted it before on Free Talk Live and also um, on, on this show. But uh, but it's really prescient, I think. And it's once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free. But that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Now, the idea of having air gap systems to where you could even rebel against, say, an AI that was so crazy. And we're talking in the very far out here. Of course, I, I understand that, uh, you know, that that shows the importance of inhabiting multiple, you know, multiple planets or multiple areas or at least uh, having multiple communities and not, you know, just one big system. OK. And but that speaks, you know, that that line from Dune, I have to say, I think that really speaks to what we were talking about before, where, hey, all the robots are going to take over the jobs and all this stuff. Well, at the end of the day, someone's still calling the shots. If there's not an A.I., someone's still calling the shots on what that is. And even if there is an A.I., maybe to some degree it still has uh, some kind of human control, though I doubt it, as we understand artificial intelligence and the singularity that wouldn't necessarily happen. But. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, all those robots are just going to be controlled by somebody. And that's kind of what I was saying in the fact that, you know, what happens when all that starts getting applied to armies and, you know, and in, in, into military systems or whatever else. Uh, terrible, terrible idea. 
so I, I thought this was a fascinating thought. And, and the, you know, the messenger kind of got into the idea of, you know, are we uh, really, you know, like the brain in the vat theory and all of that? Are we being, you know, is there a, a, a galactic council that's keeping humanity on planet Earth, kind of like the Paralandra books uh, by C.S. Lewis? Or is there, you know, there's other the, the day the Earth stood still. Uh, is kind of another classic example of that where, you know, humans are said, okay, you guys better shape the fuck up or we're going to reset this planet, Uh, you know? And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, Hey, (laughs) right. Uh, I don't necessarily, you know, my, my outlook on the idea of aliens is grim and, or, you know, grim in comparison to others who are always hopeful we'll find life elsewhere. Um, I am not, I do not have such a hope and nor do I would, would I want to go out into the universe necessarily with the mission of going and finding it. It's fine and dandy if you want to, um, but that's not what really floats my boat. I'm more interested in exploring, you know, uh, the human condition and what, the solar system, because I also think we'd have a very hard time uh, other than generational ships and cryonics and all that stuff going elsewhere in the first place, uh, you know, outside of our solar system. But I think within our own solar system, we can explore a whole lot about the universe and about ourselves. And that's that's what really excites me uh, about space exploration more than anything else. But uh, but but a great bit message. And I thought some interesting, interesting points to lay out. And yeah, to, again, totally open to you know, using other, maybe like the asteroids in the prime asteroid belt, like Ceres or something where we, uh, you know, we, we do a bit of experimentation and we have it air gapped, uh, not, not opposed to that. I think that's a, that's an interesting idea. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we could talk about that forever. Right. Uh, the next question is actually comes from the same, uh, the same bit messenger. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And I, and I love getting bit message is so good. In fact, I've heard some recent, uh, hopeful news that BitMessage is going to get some, uh, may get some serious development behind it from various groups. And I could not be more excited about that because I'm really enjoying using it. Uh, there is an Android app, I think, that that people have considered making. Uh, I really like it as a communication system uh, far better than than even email. Uh, so please feel free to, you know, send me BitMessages. Um, but this is... Uh, this is interesting. Okay. Well, you know, actually I'm going to, I'm going to knock in two here because he, he lists, there's a list of questions here. And one of them was this, this will be a fun one here quick. Uh, since we were on the topic of science fiction, did I really hear you bash the new Battlestar Galactica? If so, I might just have to demand a refund of my sovereign tech, sovereign tech subscription fee. <laughs> and he was joking, of course. Uh, but that was, uh, <laughs> he's like, Oh, wait, uh, anyway, you know, and he said, thanks for putting out such a great show that entertains and educates me every week. I continue to be surprised by how closely your ideology aligns with my own. In fact, I'm convinced you are a, my smarter, blacker and cooler alter ego, uh, though. I think, uh, though I like to think that I could kick your ass in a beige, beige boxing competition. And, uh, yes, I am not that good with a good, with a classic beige box. So <laughs> you'd take me, <laughs> But thank you so much uh, for for the really kind words. That's that's awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yes, I do bash Battlestar Galactica, uh, the the new version of it, and partly because the the main thing for me comes down to is there, there's no heroes in the show. There's no real uh, you know I'm not going to spend much time with this because I've talked about it before. But there, there's there's no heroes like it. There's nobody to root for. You know, if I'm going to watch a fictional show, it'd be great if there was you know 
aspirational characters, you know, uh, with, with aspiration, with attitudes that you would want to aspire to not aspirational as in uh, hyper materialism. Okay. And so that, that's kind of the thing. And I, you know, I thought it was cool that like commander Kane was a woman and that she was a lesbian at that. I thought that was great. Really, really great thing for a show to do. I didn't mind that Starbuck was a woman either. All that's cool. But at the same time, like Lloyd Bridges is commander Kane in the original Battlestar Galactica. That dude was so badass. <laughs> I mean, he was awesome. Uh, just the real, his real crass and, and confidence, you know, that, that, that the character would portray. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. There's, there's nobody like that. There's no like real person to kind of like watch and go, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like awesome. So that, that was, that was my, my issue uh, with it though. I did love that they had Richard Hatch in it for, for a while. Uh, that was, that was pretty seminal stuff. Richard Hatch being from playing, you know, being Apollo from the original uh, Battlestar Galactica. And also, you know, actually, as I understand it, there's a, there's a new, there's a whole other rendition of Galactica getting made uh, that is going to be for theaters has nothing to do with, with the previous, uh, two previous Battlestar Galactica television shows. Uh, I am interested to see what that looks like. I still wish that Richard Hatch got his Battlestar Galactica, the second coming. Cause that was awesome. Uh, that he did a trailer back in the nineties that I was, I had the pleasure of seeing and man, that was so cool. That was like, that was the golden science fiction thing to catch back before the internet, you know, really owned everything. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, but I mean, you know, there's lots of great Galactica out there. Actually, Richard Hatch wrote a series of books that are phenomenal. There's also a guy, uh, oh, that's terrible. I can't think of his name, but he, he had a website called, his name was Mark something and he had a battles, uh, he had a website called Battlestar Republica, I think. And he wrote, I actually, I keep the stories because they're, they're so good. Uh, it's really, if you wanted like more classic Galactica and of course there's comic books out now to, you know, addressing all that. But if you want great classic Galactica, look up the Battlestar Republica. I think it was, maybe I, I can put it in the show notes if the site still exists. If it doesn't, then I will post those stories myself on the upcoming sovereign tech.com, the new webpage. Uh, so moving on talking about, you know, things for, for Brian sovereign to do, to, uh, to work on and develop, <laughs> Uh, amongst a million other things. Uh, he had a, he had a, a great question of, let's see, if you had to pick one tech slash Liberty slash anarchy slash crypto, etc., conference to attend, which would it be? And why, if you were to design your own conference, what would it look like? And who would you have on as speakers slash panelists? Savcon would be fucking awesome. Thank you. I am honored that you, that, that you think that'd be an awesome idea. Uh, I would love for there to be, you know, I, I'd be happy to, I mean, putting together a convention or a conference is a shit ton of work. Okay. And I know people that have done it and I respect their abilities in making it happen. Even when things don't always go as to plan to even get them to, to come off to a near semblance of what they're supposed to be is a miraculous feat in my opinion. So I would not look forward to that kind of work, you know? Uh, and, but if I had, you know, let me answer the first one, uh, as far as which one would I attend, uh, DEF CON. I think DEF CON is really the one to always kind of catch, 
Uh, I can't really think of any other any other series. Well, no, you know, the best one, actually. No, here we go. The best one is Chaos Computer Club. Every year I used to go to it in Berlin. Uh, it was a hell of a time. They just had their 30th anniversary la- uh, this this year in 2014. Uh, and that looked like it was amazing. Uh, so Chaos Computer Club in Germany is probably the, the best of of the bunch. Um, but none of these are perfect. You know, none of them are, I mean, and none can be, nothing can be perfect because everybody has different tastes and desires for what they want. Um, But Chaos Computer Club, like, isn't inherently anarchist. It is and it isn't. Uh, So, you know, if I could make a SovCon, what would that look like? Who would I have speak? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, first off, I'd probably love to do it like, was it ephemeral or whatever, where they have it all on boats? And, you know, you go from boat to boat and whatever. I think that'd be pretty wild. Um, you know, that that's that's a very interesting idea, uh, though. Admittedly, I recognize where that may create a, uh, a ceiling of where people may not be able to attend. So maybe that wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, so then it needs I'd, I would want it more or less out in the woods. I wouldn't want it anywhere near San Francisco. And if the people, you know, if, if the the main, you know, tech giants or, the, you know, the a lot of the startup uh, culture guys in, in people in, uh, well, I might as well say guys, cause there ain't a whole lot of women there, <laughs> uh, in San Francisco didn't want to come out for it. Fine. I don't care because I think they live in a reality distortion field anyway. Uh, <laughs> like, like the, what works, what would actually help the world, uh, is not by and large getting developed there in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> really, you know, I'm glad BitTorrent's there and maybe some others, but, by and large, these these people are not looking to help, you know, the, the bulk of the planet. Uh, they're looking to help people in cities, but but not outside of that. Anyway, regardless, I'm, I'm getting way off topic. Um, so, boy, who would I have as speakers and panelists there? Uh, and, yeah, what would it look like, you know, overall? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have a whole ton of, a ton of uh, different ideas on that, but I would certainly want... Uh, so I'd, I'd like it to, to address really far out futuristic ideas. I wouldn't want it to just necessarily be products that, or I wouldn't really, I wouldn't want it to be at all unless it was something that, that really helps out with, uh, you know, matters of say system D and whatever, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want, uh, you know, booth people there. I wouldn't want people selling products. I'd want people kind of more talking, selling ideas, talking about, you know, what we can do, what, what, what's up and coming and the, really the far out stuff. I would want it. I'd want people to concentrate on where this could really go, where it could be in the future, uh, kind of a, a Futurian meeting, uh, sort of, you know, the new Futurians, <laughs> which is a great idea. Uh, I'd, I'd love for that sort of thing. I'd like for there to be a lot of science fiction people uh, attending and doing some theorizing. Uh, I, you know, I'd want it more to be about that. But at the same time, I'd like there to be a lot of practical applications that one could do in the decentralized space. I wouldn't, ironically, I probably wouldn't have a whole lot of people there uh, involved in blockchain technology, maybe a couple groups. There's groups that like, uh, the block tech group and all that. I mean, they're doing great stuff. Uh, there's, uh, you know, in, uh, Monitos, they're doing amazing work that, uh, some of which, you know, can't even all be talked about. Uh, but you know, so, so stuff like guys like that, I would definitely, I would have there, even though, uh, 
yeah, I'd have them there. So as far as speakers, uh, boy, I, I can I could go down the, the list of people I'd want there. I, you know, of course, uh, Cory Doctorow. I'd want the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy talking there. Uh, I would want Paige Peterson talking there about MadeSafe. I'd love to have David Irvine there. And actually, I'd love to have Paige, you know, even talk more about, like, maybe maybe her visions of how she sees things uh you know, the decentralized future. I think that that'd be interesting uh, because she's, you know, really knee deep in, in all of that. Uh, I'd love to have I, I, people that, that talk about the, the ethics, um, you, you know, of, of all of this, which that doesn't get explored nearly enough at any conference. Uh, you know, I'd love to have guys like Wes Bertrand there, uh, you know, to talk about what this all means to humanity and what people can do, you know, internally, uh, not just technologically, because I think that they are hand in hand as we go forward into the future. Uh, so, you know, that that would be that that would be an awesome uh, lineup as far as boy, other people. Yeah. I <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I'd love to have a bunch of science fiction authors that I think, uh, you know, and maybe maybe there'd be, you know, some some conflicting matters like there's the books called Nexus. There's a couple of them. I, I keep forgetting the author's name. I'd love to have him there. I don't agree with his outlook on the future, but that would be very interesting. Uh, I'd love to have Andy Weir there. Uh, there. There's plenty, plenty of people. I'd love to have Jacob Applebaum there, Violet Blue. Uh, and and because uh, I think that'd be another interesting aspect to really discuss at a sovereign tech convention or conference uh, would be what does sexuality mean in, say, like the virtual reality space? What does sexuality mean in a transhumanist sense, you know, in going towards the future? What does all that mean? And uh, I don't know who other than Violet Blue. I'm not sure who else to even ask to attend that sort of thing, because who's actually even necessarily explored it. Uh, but that, you know, people that talk about those subjects would be really good. So I'd, I'd want it to be about a lot more necessarily than, than just what's getting, you know, developed though. I'd be happy to have Pavel Duroff there as well, you know, to lay out, uh, you know, his thoughts on how encryption, you know, can, can just get past even the most, you know, atrocious of, of governments, which he's had to deal with, uh, in Russia and elsewhere as far as that goes. So I hope that kind of answers the question. I, I think it, It'd be a great time, but it'd be a few years down the line. It's certainly something I, I could never, or at least at the moment, I no way I could throw that. Uh, but it would be fun. I'll be back with more. Hey, look! Got an energy spike. Hold on! Launch. No! Bombing the Narn back to the Stone Age wasn't enough for you? Then we heard it. The sound of something terrible being born. This is madness. Station 3 to Commander Ivanova. Centauri have launched a full-scale assault. Time is coming on! It's our turn now! Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall. Where dreams are born and die. Where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Do you still have it? Got it right here. How does this affect System D? I don't know. The message just said it was important. I think we need to find out more about this. 
Tool of the Week. It is time for Tool of the Week. Boy, this is a segment that's been skipped for a couple of weeks because there was just so much to to talk about uh, in, in, in other segments during those episodes. Um, but uh, here we go. We are back. And now I did want to, I had promised on social media a little while back that in, a, in, at the time, the next episode, I would have talked about the Japanese software ecosystem that most people don't even know exists uh, that people can use. I will not be getting to that in this episode. I will save it for next time, but do look out for that. I just want you to know I haven't forgotten about it. Uh, and But this week, I want to talk about Tribbler. This kind of this I didn't know about this and it did the rounds uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, talking about how this is anonymous torrenting more or less but i think it's it's a lot more than uh, than that and it's it's tagline is privacy U- tribbler privacy using our tor inspired onion routing search and download torrents with less worries or censorship so this is software that you download only works for windows at this time as i understand it um, and though I'm, it's open source, so I imagine you can get your hands on the source code and do what you do, maybe work, have it work in wine or whatever. Um, and it's definitely, I think they're only on version 0. 0.6 or it says 6.40. Uh, I read that differently the other day, but this is certainly software that is in beta. Um, no, no doubt about that. And, uh, you can tell just by the look of it, it's all pretty, pretty basic. And there is two points. Um, I actually got a bit message from a listener to Sovereign Tech that made this uh, made this point to me. He actually showed a uh, someone at the Tor project looked into Tribbler because Tribbler isn't using Tor. It's using something that's Tor like. And so they explored that. And there was a whole lot. I'll put the link in the show notes uh, because there was a a whole lot of uh, criticisms that this developer for Tor had towards Tribbler. But at the end, it pretty much read that. uh, do not use this if your threat model includes ad- active attackers, adversaries versed in cryptography, those with lots of money, or if you wish to be anonymous. And they put a huge, this wasn't there when I first downloaded Tribbler, but they on the website, when you go to the website in big, big, bold sign, you know, more or less, it says, do not put yourself in danger. Our anonymity is not yet mature. Tribbler does not protect you against spooks and government agencies. We are a torrent client and aim to protect you against lawyer-based attacks and censorship. With help from many volunteers, we are continuously evolving and improving. So keep that in mind. That anonymity comes with a caveat. Uh, and, and that changed recently, so I'm glad that I actually held off in talking about this before a lot of that info kind of came to light. But this is interesting. So what Tribbler is, essentially, it is a BitTorrent client, more or less, uh, that you know, allows for a degree of anonymity when you're downloading, which is, you know, that's very commonplace. Actually, torrenting doesn't work well over Tor, and it will actually hurt you in your, uh, you know, reaching for anonymity. Now, you know, Tribbler's trying to address that, but it's actually so much more because it's also, it has search engines built into it to help you find various torrents without having to go to a website. And I think that this... There's there's a lot more here than they're really laying out there. I think that they're 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 kind of holding their their cards close to the close to the chest, if you know what I mean, because what I see in the potential for with this software is very similar to, you know, in 
to a kind of a made safe idea to a decentralized internet, a peer to peer internet. Uh, I see that as a possibility existing within this software framework. Now it's night and day compared to what, you know, admittedly to what made safe has in mind as far as, you know, uh, you know, authentication, encryption, stuff like that. Okay. So I don't want it. I don't want that to be necessarily a comparison, but I'm just saying that this looks like it has the potential to do much of that in a very peer to peer way. Uh, it, it could work perhaps, uh, not unlike, um, RetroShare, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, which I have to update my RetroShare key, actually. So that way, you know, Sovereign Tech listeners can get on board with that. Um, but it, I think it could work very much like that. But this will have anonymity built in, which that's interesting. Uh, you know, if it can hide IP addresses and all that stuff, that's something that RetroShare cannot do. Okay, so maybe I should more accurately compare it to RetroShare. I don't want to compare it to MateSafe. Nothing is quite like that, okay, uh, for what they have in mind. Uh, so, But I think that, that really the guys at Tribbler are starting off small. They're trying to create a BitTorrent client that shows you, you know, what can be done. But I can definitely see that they have some much bigger, bigger plans. And honestly, if they can get their anonymity straight, I'm excited about it. So check out Tribbler, Tribbler.org. I'll be back with more. Hey, Sovereignati. Yes, you, Sovereign Tech listeners. I just want a minute of your time. But thank you so much, as always, for listening to the show and taking part in it every week in various ways through your messages and whichever. It really means so much to me. And here's the point where I let you know that if you enjoy the show, I want you to look in the show notes at SovereignTech.com and you'll find addresses for various cryptos like Bitcoin and NXT that you can donate. Also on the right hand side of the page are affiliate links and even a way to donate via PayPal, uh, along with links to how you can follow me on social media like Twitter or Google Plus. Or if you want to be really saucy, you can just follow me on SoundCloud. I assure you, everything you can do for the show really does help and it's much appreciated. Again, thank you so much for listening and for going on this fun little journey with me that is Sovereign Tech. I really, I love all of you. But uh, let's get back to it. We're never going to make it out alive if those blockchain drones get off the ground. I can handle that. You just find us another ride. Get on! Nice moves. When did you learn that? On with you. No guns, no killing. Are the drones taken care of? They are now. Nothing works better than a quick hack. Let's get going. Hack It is time for HackSec, where we talk about hacker and security issues. Uh, and this week, boy... We- <laughs> Some dismaying news, some looks into the future. Uh, but before I get into that, you know, it, it's important to for me to say, as I've said many times, that I want multiple internets. I don't want just one. I want Tribbler. Okay, say Tribbler has the potential to be a whole other internet. You know, I want Tribbler. I want MadeSafe. I want RetroShare. I want Usenet. I want all these things that, you know, may have, you know, there may be like a, a shared network of sorts, though even that I, I, I would like there to be multiple networks as well, you know, multiple network layouts. Uh, but I want 
those, you know, I really, I want multiple internet. So that's it. I want multiple webs. Okay. <laughs> you know, however you want to phrase it. So, and part of the reason I do is because when you decentralize communication systems, it almost inherently gives you privacy or at least gives you the option if you're willing to go and take it. And that's, that leads in well to what we're going to talk about here. And this is coming from uh, upi.com. Uh, internet privacy will be mostly gone by 2025, according to experts. Like I said, this whole episode, we're talking about the future and the not so far off future. I mean, this is only 10 years away. Okay. Uh, according to a new Pew Research Center report, most experts think internet privacy is on its way out. The research center asked over 2,500 technology experts if politicians and technology innovators would create a trusted privacy rights infrastructure by 2025. What is most likely to happen by then and the future of privacy or yeah, as well as what is most likely to happen by then and the future of privacy in a broader sense. 55% of respondents said a quote, trusted privacy rights infrastructure end quote would not exist by 2025. Uh, Vitu, boy, I can't pronounce that name. <laughs> Vitatis uh, Butremus, the chief advisor to a major government's ministry, said George Orwell may have been optimistic when imagining Big Brother. Boy, we talked about that last week during HackSec, didn't we? Privacy will be the new taboo. This is a quote, and will not will not be appreciated or understood by upcoming generations. End quote. Wrote an anonymous responder. Uh, quote, public norms will continue to trend toward the desire for more privacy, while people's actions will trend toward giving up more and more control over their data. End quote, wrote Joe Cochin, the chief operating officer for U.S. Ignite. The report explains how people tend to want privacy, but they also want to share everything they're doing and thinking with their friends. The more people share, the more government and corporations can track and store the data to identify trends. Many experts noted the government is slow to build laws around technology, and the laws it creates often don't lean toward increased privacy. There is also the fact technology moves very quickly. The report also explains that privacy and the defenses for privacy will continue to battle for the foreseeable future. Many experts noted that the cryptography that protects data and the programs made to break the cryptography are in an eternal arms race. So a lot to talk about here. Uh, I think <laughs> to say to say by 2025, there won't be. That's an interesting way to phrase the question. So more than half of the technology experts that they asked said that by 2025, there will not be a privacy based infrastructure uh, for the Internet and for communications in general. Uh, that will be probably, you know, for the Internet, the big, bad Internet, the singular Internet, you know, the one that that is the as Julian Assange said, that is the essence of a surveillance state. No, it's not going to have a privacy based infrastructure. I don't believe that for a second because the companies that are behind it, and I have some stories that hope maybe eventually I'll get to on Sovereign Tech, where it's talking about how Amazon, you know, could more or less own, you know, 70 to, to 80 percent of the Internet, meaning that it, it runs off of Amazon's servers or Google could perhaps do the same in the future. These companies thrive off of knowing everything about you. Forget about the NSA. I mean, the NSA is another issue entirely, no doubt. Okay. But these companies, th the bulk of the internet of these companies thrive off. They have to know 
Otherwise, they have no business model. And there's people who have said, well, Google will come up with a double-blind ad system. That way you don't know, uh, you know, what, what exactly is, or, you know, that way Google doesn't know what's going on, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, I, I don't think that that's ever going to exist. In fact, they said if it did exist, it would exist in 10 years. So, you know, I'm not sure of everybody who they asked, but then, so I guess by 2025, supposedly we will have this privacy structured thing. And I just, I find that to be absolute bullshit that Google cannot implement privacy features and encryption right now in ways that we know, or that as best as we know, work rock solid. That's crap. If you can develop a driverless car in a really short period of time, there's no, and, and everything else that they do, you know, all their other moonshots that they, that they get out, out of nowhere, there's no reason that they can't start implementing that. And in fact, use Chrome alone to allow for that internet. I mean, they have the web browser, they have the gatekeeper, the web browser is the gatekeeper and they could implement all of this stuff right now within the web browser. They don't have to wait for the internet to catch up. They don't wait for the internet to catch up. That's why that they're, you know, they're, they're fucking with SSL. We've talked about that. Google could strong arm encryption and they don't. These companies, any one of these companies really could start strong arming encryption. Microsoft could do it. Apple could do it. And they choose not to because they need to know about you. They have to. That's their business model. And the government to keep control has to know as much as they possibly can about you. So, yeah, I agree. The big bad Internet, as we know it, uh, will not have uh, will not have a, a, a trusted privacy rights infrastructure, as it was stated uh, by 2025. That won't happen. So but what's the beauty of this? Even if this is absolutely true and that, you know, the Internet's just fucked. Well, like we were talking about with Tribbler, and like I mentioned, with MadeSafe, RetroShare, whole slew of other technologies, Usenet, we don't need their internet to do what we want to do. System D is all about going around it, all about running parallel to it. You don't even have to use it. Who cares? And this is interesting, though, the mindset that people talk about wanting their privacy, but then they also want to share all their information about them, about themselves. I don't know about that. I, I don't know that people I haven't. It's very rare, frankly, uh, outside of the older generation. It's very rare that the average person that I talk to with you know a relative degree of youth uh, says that they actually care about their privacy. It's exceptionally rare. Most people is like, yeah, I'm an open book. And that's OK. You know, like, like Steve Gibson said, everybody's different. You know, I mean, even Steve Gibson, this is the guy, this is the guy that invented, that's inventing squirrel, the king of encryption. He actually said, he's like, he's like, well, he says, I have to understand, you know, I don't mind if people know about me, but then there's people that, uh, you know, that do mind. And I need to accept that, that, you know, people have different ways of thinking and different desires and whatever. And that's the key is that when you have multiple systems, you have choice and thus you have control over your own person and information that gets released about you, you know, via these electronic means. So, and I definitely agree with the, you know, the overall thought that, uh, you know, <laughs> that, uh, Orwell was being, you know, awfully optimistic, boy, that's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. So, but that's the thing is that they're talking about this. It's like, 
because they're they're kind of framing this question in that, well, maybe it'll come after 2025 and they don't go into that. And you can read more. There's a link in, in this article to the actual Pew Research poll about it. Um, but there's really because I think that's what some people will say is that, well, how are you going to get the whole Internet on board with this? I mean, you can't do it. It's not going to happen. Uh, you know, no, you can. Because there's an area where you can make all of these changes happen, and that's at the web browser alone. And they won't. And it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. I mean, all it is, I mean, they could just make an extension, you know, or make an app for Chrome that would do it or do something for, for Firefox, you know, something uh, recently that came out for Firefox that I think is, is awesome. And I, I, I should have done it for a tool of the week at some point, but it's called ad nauseum. And this, what this does is, is when you go to, uh, when you go to a website and there's ads on the website, it just starts clicking everything. Okay. <laughs> like the, the, the extension, and it's only for Firefox right now, but it just starts clicking all the ads without you noticing it. It doesn't change. It doesn't affect the, you know, your web browsing experience. But what it's doing is, is it's actually doing what, uh, what some have called spam cryption, where it's just sending a bunch of bullshit data up. It's, it's making it seem like you clicked on everything. So that way, you know, what you're really interested in, what you're really doing kind of gets hidden in the noise. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff, if people really cared, if these big companies really cared about this stuff, because they keep saying that they do. We talked last week how Eric Schmidt said, oh, if you want security and all this stuff, you know, come to us and all that. They could implement it right now and they don't. And other people are are coming up with their workarounds. Thankfully, I'm really excited about that. OK, because commerce is going to get done no matter what. As long as we have a market, the market's going to find its ways, whether it's, whether it's a, a freed market or, you know, a mixed economy, whatever the fuck it is. OK, it's going to find its way of transacting. System D will go on. Doesn't matter how oppressive things get. So I'm glad that those workarounds are, are happening. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, some of these some of these guys are big names and they're just like, well, yeah, who the hell cares? You know, sure, people talk about wanting their privacy, but uh, but at the end, they're just going to give up all their information. So it, it doesn't really matter. So I guess by and large, you know, some people ask me because uh, this was actually sent in to me. Some people ask me, you know, what do you what are your thoughts on this? Do you think by 2025 this is true? Yeah, I think for the big, bad Internet, this will be true for the Internet that Amazon and Google and all of them reside on. Yeah, absolutely. There will not be a privacy rights infrastructure trusted privacy rights infrastructure at all outside of that internet though that's where things are getting excited and that's where you bet your ass your privacy is going to be paramount and we need to be using and working towards those technologies now what does freedom mean tune in to lrn.fm to find out lrn.fm is the liberty radio network a collection of live talk radio and podcasts all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Ah, we made it. They're not kidding when they say you're the best, Mr. Sovereign. Oh, Elizabeth, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, really? Really. Why don't I show you? 
Right here? Out in the woods? On the bike? Elizabeth, I can rise to any, any occasion. <laughs> Brian. The Climax. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> it is time for The Climax. I love those intros. Uh, <laughs> um, this week, uh, you know, and the climax, of course, is where I talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. Uh, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be tech related at all. It could be a movie, TV show, product, could be a topic, uh, could be, you know, poetry, you name it. Uh, it could be that. And um, this week, I'm actually the, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I went and saw Exodus gods and kings um which i will just call exodus from now on and uh <laughs> or exodus the movie and this is you know major blockbuster made by ridley scott starring christian bale uh, along with you know some other actors um including sigourney weaver which was pretty great to see ridley scott and sigourney weaver working together again of course ridley scott is a phenomenal uh, director and writer and has, you know, worked on films, you know, some of the greatest of all time, uh, alien from the seventies. He also made blade runner, which many would consider to be the greatest science fiction film of all time. I wouldn't argue that point. Uh, I think forbidden planet is, but blade runner is right up there. Um, and also, uh, you know, he made gladiator, which is an in tremendous film with Russell Crowe, uh, American gangster, another one with Russell Crowe. He's, he's made, you know, Thelma and Louise. I mean, he's just made a, t a tremendous amount of films that are really, uh, amazing works. And, uh, really Exodus was no different. Uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic movie. I know it's gotten panned, you know, in the reviews and <sighs> yeah, whatever critics don't know shit. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, they, they, they really don't. Uh, and it just, they're so irrelevant. They're so irrelevant. Uh, and they just keep proving it all the time. Um, really. So in fact, you know, I was catching the show, Marco Polo, same thing. Critics just panned it right and left. And I swear, I think, I think critics just have, I, I think they have a problem with orgies because they talk the same way about Spartacus. They just, I don't know what it is. They hate these period pieces by and large, other than they enjoy gladiator, uh, you know, for whatever reason. But anyway, um, Exodus gods and Kings. That was, uh, it, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Christian Bale did a great job as Moses. Uh, I know a lot of people have complained about the lack of diversity of the actors. Fair point. You know, I, I won't go into that. That's not what I want to talk about here, but that's a fair point. Um, but as far as like, you know, the, the overall, the thrust of the movie, uh, obviously the effects were amazing and Ridley Scott is known very well for his landscape, you know, his landscapes that he portrays on camera and they were tremendous in this. And that's always enjoyable too. That's one of the things I like about period piece films is it gives you a chance to, in many ways, you know, live, uh, a time or even relive if it's something within which you've lived, which obviously the Egypt, that wouldn't be true for anybody other than maybe Cain, uh, but never mind, I didn't say that. Uh, and so, you know, Egypt, to see Egypt in a degree of glory within which modern, uh, you know, or not just modern, because that's the thing, like it's not just modern effects that could do this, because Ridley Scott's actually the proof that, that it doesn't take modern special effects to be able to make, uh, you know, an amazing uh, landscape. Okay, you know, an amazing, uh, uh, you know, visual escape to see because Blade Runner came out in like 82 and that movie holds up to this day as far as beauty, as far as like just the, the scale 
and the scope and the re, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the real vision being brought to life of the future that he pulled off in that. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So it doesn't require modern, uh, you know, you know, modern technology, modern special effects to do it, but Ridley Scott really delivers the goods as far as like really being in ancient, uh, Egypt. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. In fact, uh, uh, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy also enjoyed the movie. Uh, so, but a lot of people, you know, I want to get into other aspects of this film and cause it really was as far as I think what a lot of people would ask me would ask the golden stallion is say stallion. How did it match up to Torah though? How did it match up to the Holy Bible? And well, not that well, <laughs> I mean, it, it actually, how Ridley Scott pulled off a pretty amazing feat because what I think he did is he made a film that was you know still it was good but it made sure that it did not necessarily offend atheists muslims jews or or christians like you could belong to any of those uh you know labels and you could still enjoy this movie and that's quite a feat to pull off of course that keeps you from missing out on some of the more interesting aspects of the exodus story you know, that has to do with Moses. And, uh, they like, I mean, one thing I think that a lot of people would complain about is that the, the plagues, the 10 plagues, which they didn't do 10 of them in the movie, but whatever, uh, the, the plagues that they did show by and large could be explained in a very secular fashion. Okay. There was no need for a God in this. Um, but there was one when the last plague, when it kills off the firstborn of everybody in Egypt that doesn't have the blood of a lamb over their door, that one, you can't really explain that secularly at all. Um, you know, it just kind of shows like this black cloud going over Memphis, you know, in Egypt. And uh, and and that's, yeah, you know, there, there's no secular explanation for that. So uh, then, of course, you know, there's a point where they're kind of crossing the, uh, you know, crossing the Red Sea, which they fucked that up because, well, everybody fucked that up. It was the sea of, it's supposed to be translated as the sea of reeds, not the red sea. So we don't know where they actually crossed in the first place, but that's another point. That's me getting, you know, being all koanim on you and no need for that. Okay. Um, so, you know, when they're crossing the red sea, the, I think the explanation that they were probably running with, because they don't part the sea, the sea just kind of resides. And so they're trying to say like, where, where a tsunami, when, when a tsunami is about to occur, it will actually pull back large chunks large chunks of uh you know of water to where it exposes landmass and so i don't think that they were allowing that to be a miracle either in the film um so but so really the only one that that can't just be explained away is is definitely the what were the firstborn of of everybody you know just just dies just stops breathing you know instantly uh, so that, you know, all that was, was fine and dandy. Um, they missed some of my favorite parts. Now, one thing to, to consider is that what did they base this off of? Like I said, they didn't do a great job of really, you know, uh, exercising Torah, you know, you know, in, in the movie or running off of the Bible in, in any serious fashion, they seem to really have worked off in my opinion. And they, there's no discussion of this. Maybe there will be when the movie comes out and we just don't know it now. There seems to be. They're running off of the works of a guy named Artapanus, okay, of Alexandria. And Artapanus was a historian. He was a Jew in like the second century BCE. And Artapanus of Alexandria, he lived in Alexandria. He wrote down uh, various books about the history of the Jews, not unlike Josephus. Um, unfortunately, 
like so many other uh, what would be, I imagine, very insightful works, uh, they were all burned in the Library of Alexandria. The the bulk of the, the works of Artapanis were, were burned in, you know, in that fire. Uh, so thank you, Christians. I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, so the only way we know some of what Artapanis even talked about is that he was quoted by other authors who works fortunately survived in other libraries, uh, not even though most libraries were also most other libraries of the ancient world were also burned down, uh, like the library of Pergamum was burned down. Now, it wasn't just the library of Alexandria. People don't really don't grasp the the scope with it, with which, you know, we have lost uh, thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years of knowledge, uh, you know, due to the burning of those libraries. Anyway, Artapanis describes Moses as a general, as someone that brings all these incredible, you know, like found cities and does all these amazing things for the Egyptians uh, and whatever else. And he says the same for, you know, uh, Joshua or uh Joseph, I mean, Joseph and, uh, you know, and Abraham and, and all of that. Uh, Artapanis really gives you a definitely a uh, a look of, hey, you know, the, the Jews are awesome. OK, and they they brought like civiliz They brought a lot of really cool tricks to the Egyptians and all of that. And that Moses was pretty key in a lot of that happening. So the idea of him being a general and all that and, and being well loved across various cities and, and all this business is definitely comes, in my opinion, comes from Artapanis. Now, Ridley Scott may say it came from somewhere else, or he may say that that's where it came from. I don't know. But that's my opinion on it. And you can read up a bit on, on Artapanis if you want, uh, you know, to find out more about where that comes from. Um, but, you know, where I was kind of disappointed with this film, there's two points where I was disappointed. One is, is that I was really kind of hoping and I think Stephanie was too. We were kind of hoping that like Noah, like the movie Noah with Russell Crowe, where it was clearly an esoteric, you know, kind of a occult piece. Th this wasn't that at all. This, in fact, it had other than, you know, seeing the eye of Ra all over the place, which only makes sense in fucking Egypt. OK, uh, you know, there really wasn't any kind of occultism at all. I was a little disappointed in that. I was really hoping to see some of it. Um, but the other part that that was missing that I really love, and it's my favorite part of the whole Exodus story or about, a, you know, Moses getting out of out of Egypt is when there's a point where Moses, uh, you know, God doesn't allow him to talk anymore. God's kind of punishing him or whatever. Uh, and Aaron has to do all the his brother Aaron has to do all the talking for him. And so they go to, you know, to, to Pharaoh's court and. Moses does like all these amazing little tricks. Like he turns a snake into a rod. He does all these other things. And the, they totally cut this out and they put in Artapanis' whole thing about, you know, the Jews, you know, doing some degree of, of guerrilla, uh, you know, military training and, and doing some kind of like terrorist actions within Egypt. That's, that's what they do instead of, instead of these magic tricks that actually occurred in the book of Exodus. And it's a shame because these magic tricks are, are, are interesting for one reason. And that is there are these impossible feats being done. And eventually the, but, but the first few of them that get done, the Egyptians can do them too, which is weird, right? Because if there's only one God, is God letting the Egyptians do it? Oh, it was Satan, Satan was making them and then stop. Then Satan could have kept on running them because it gets to a point to where the, 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 the magic tricks being pulled off, the Egyptians can't mimic. Okay. 
And so if Satan, you know, has all these abilities of illusions and whatever, then he could have just kept the illusions going. I think that's bullshit to say that, that they were, you know, working with Satan on it. I think that there's a far more interesting aspect to it. If you are a religious person to wonder who exactly were the Egyptians praying to that allowed them to pull off these magic tricks in the first place, you know, <laughs> if Moses does. So I would, it would have been interesting to see those kind of shown off, uh, you know, on film and, and it didn't, it didn't happen at all. Um, so, but, but by and large, again, you know, just to kind of experience ancient Egypt, uh, that, that made it a, a very, uh, enjoyable film. It, uh, it also, the interesting thing was, is that there's room for within this story, there's room for Ridley Scott made room for the fact that Moses may be hallucinating the whole thing with God. And there's an interesting t- choice in who plays God. It's actually a little boy. And I don't, I don't get that. And in fact, I mean, admit it. My first thought was that, okay, because there's a point where, where Moses gets hit on the head with a rock. And that's after that is the first time he sees the burning bush and he sees God, you know, he sees this little boy acting as God. Um, I half wondered if that little boy was really just um, like Moses's child self, you know, a, a reflection of that and what he wanted, you know, and not, you know, and had nothing to do with, um, you know, with an actual God. So, but then again, you have that whole scene where, you know, the firstborn and e- all the firstborns in Egypt die. That's uh, th- that kind of throws a little bit of a wrench into that, but maybe there's an explanation that Ridley Scott has, you know, that, that I don't know about. So, but that was interesting is that they did leave it very much open uh, to, to the idea that all of that, everything that Moses is just nuts. He's actually not talking to any God at all. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that was clever. Uh, I'll, I'll say that much. Uh, it's not the first time that someone's been hit with a stone on their head and then suddenly had visions of, of God and of other things. You can think of uh, like the prophetess Ellen G. White. That's the same thing with her is that she had a stone thrown at her when she was young. And then suddenly she's creating a whole new religion called the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, so, which I at one point in my life was a part of. Um, but <laughs> is what it is. So Exodus, again, overall, you know, a, a fant- a great film. I mean, just don't, don't go there expecting you're not going to get any real occultism, the least that I could see. And I like to think I'm pretty good at seeing it. Uh, you know, the, the action, it's a long one. It's about three hours long. Uh, but the action was, was pretty good. The acting was, was pretty top notch though. I wish I'll admit the guy playing the Pharaoh. Nah, like he didn't act very pharaonic he didn't act very very much like a pharaoh i thought i mean he acted i guess decently nuts but uh anyway but it was really worth it by and large just to see just to kind of have a good realization of ancient egypt and another thing i like about these kinds of movies is it really gives you the chance when they get released uh you know digitally to get some awesome screen captures and have some really great backgrounds you know for on your computer to where you know you can think about the you know the 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 ancient days uh in in egypt so because there's a lot to explore as far as egypt goes uh you know i mean in, in fact especially with the moses story that i really wish they would have gotten into but what they did they did pretty well uh like i would have been intrigued to hear about the idea that moses was actually osarsef and he was a priest of akhenaten or that he was akhenaten himself who was this pharaoh that created monotheism or how about the theory written by jews in france Okay, that uh, and accepted or and at least entertained by some rabbis that the Egyptians, that the Hebrews themselves were actually the Egyptians. Done.
shit. Wow. You'll have to email me if you want me to talk about that one. Woo, boy. Anyway, Carpe Lucem, everybody. I'll see you on the other side of Encryptus. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.